Hey, welcome back to another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, host and sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And joining me, as always, Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist for The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Big news today, Terry. But before we get into the Browns' news of their new defensive coordinator, um, we have a new appearance for you coming up that has just been finalized. Why don't you talk about that? It's at the music box down in the flats. Yes, it'll be January 26th, the Thursday. I think doors open at 5, and I go on somewhere between 6.30 and 7. Um, I understand it's free to get in. Of course, I'll try to sell you some food. Uh, Last time I went there, well, of course, we had our uh, Browns thing there. Uh, Before that, I went there in in the winter, and it was a really, really good crowd. So hopefully that'll be the case. You know, I'll talk sports they'll um ask some questions and uh have a nice time it's a nice facility too right there on the river oh yeah it's beautiful we've been down there as you said so so check so, that yeah, out so that's the, the 26th at uh, uh by between five and seven and you can just go to the music box supper club website and find mm-hmm. out more i think right for june mm-hmm. 26 so all right, Terry. So big news for the Browns. They have moved very quickly on this and they've hired Jim Schwartz to be their new defensive coordinator. Uh, Jim Schwartz, of course, got his start in Cleveland during the Bill Belichick era from 93 to 95. He was a scout on the Belichick staff, uh, 25 years in the league, tons of experience. I think 14 seasons as a defensive coordinator, Titans, Bills, Eagles. His, this guy's record speaks for itself. And I know you put a column up shortly after we found out that that this was going to happen. The Browns haven't made it official yet, but everybody has um, pretty much confirmed that it's happening. But you like this hire for a number of reasons. Why don't you get into that a little bit? Uh, first of all, I believe he was their number one guy to begin with. Um, they always say that whenever they get their guy, just like they always say it's the guy who was number one on draft board. But uh, I had that impression a week or so ago uh, for a couple of reasons. One, they wanted an experienced guy with uh, head coaching experience or long-time defensive coordinating experience, because basically this guy's going to be the head coach of the defense. And um, I'm assuming Stefanski is going to still call plays, and maybe that they went in that direction, figuring, all right, let Stefanski and Watson and Van Pelt really work on the offense. So we need a guy who's going to run the defense. And I just thought it was significant, David, when you name – the four players that we know who were um, disciplined, I guess is, is the word, for various team, as they say, team team rules, they all were on defense. Delpit, uh, Miles, uh, of course, Clowney, and Perry and Rimfey. So none on offense. So that told me they wanted a kind of a tougher guy in that job. And whether a bit of it is like, I wish Kevin had been more involved on that side of the ball. Maybe not so much X's and O's, but keeping order. But there was there was a lack of order and all that stuff that came out with Clowney not wanting to play on third downs or whatever. It'd be just like that. Would that would, except on third downs? I don't know what it was. It was stupid. Let's put it this way. Well, and you get the feeling that if somebody tells Jim Schwartz that they don't want to play on third downs, they won't they won't be playing at all. Probably <laughs> they'll be on and the. And it uh, shouldn't be no, and that's exactly what it, what it ought to be because David, you, somebody's got to coach the team, and somebody's got to coach the different units, and they, this team needs to be coached harder. That was one of the things I think that came out. I mean, we laughed or whatever you wanted to roll your eyes at the you know, tough, smart, accountable 
thing they came in with. I actually kind of like it. At least say what you want to be. And that first year in 2020 when Barry and Stefanski came in, I would say the Browns were that. Maybe there was a defensive or a, a discipline lapse back then of consequence. I don't remember it. Well, yeah. I mean, we were talking a lot about the Steelers last week, Terry, and, and Mike yeah. Tomlin's mantra is the standard is the standard. Mm-hmm. And here the standard was tough, smart, and accountable. And we saw, I mean, not just the discipline issues, but guys blowing coverages and and seemingly no repercussions. Uh, right back out there, nobody subbing in for them. Like the, it, the same mistakes kept happening. And if you look at Schwartz's record, I mean, this guy takes things that aren't working and he gets them working. And, and from everything we've seen, he does hold guys accountable. Um, you know, when he was in Philadelphia, they went from being, what, uh, 28th in the league in points per game to yeah. winning a Super Bowl. And, yeah, and they, uh, I mean, they went from 28th to 12th and, in the first year. They went from, like, I don't know, 30th against the run or something to 12th. So, I mean, there was an immediate impact. He plays the same 4-3 kind of thing that uh, – Woods does, but on the backside, he believes a lot more in the man-to-man press coverage. And I think there was a real um, difference on the front office and Woods in terms of the front office kept drafting these guys that they felt could play press coverage more man-to-man. Woods played a thing. I I finally had somebody explain this to me, and I'm going to do probably a lousy job with it, but this is I said, well, what what is this defense that he plays in the back where guys are open? It's a thing called quarters. You know, we've heard cover three, cover two. It's, they divide the, the secondary up into quarters, you know, four different parts. And then one knows that's supposed to hand one off to the other and all that. The fact that we got confused listening to it, or remember when the defensive coach, this is Jeff Howard spoke that time, and that press conference was trying to explain a blowing coverage or something. And we all sat there going, and I listened to that thing like twice. I, I'm sorry, I listened to it once and then read the transcript. I don't know what he's talking about. I really don't. And maybe that's quarters. I don't know what it is. The, the, what, when Woods was with San Francisco on the secondary coach, that's what they played. And it did work well for him. But it didn't. Here And the other thing I was told is that also creates some problems on the run defense. I don't know exactly why, David, Maybe, and you're more immersed in this stuff than I am, but what do you think on that? Are you familiar with quarters? Yeah, so let's – well, so th- this is um, this is a little bit – quarters is pass coverage, right, which is how you, how you mm-hmm. want to allocate your back seven or however many on, on parts of the field. But a lot of what people are talking about today with Jim Schwartz's – system revolves around this wide nine wide nine front. Yeah. and basically what that is and you've seen this terry over the years where you take a defensive end and you line him up on the tight end side but way way wide mm-hmm. of the tight end and it's the nine hole basically or you know or, or depending on what side of the field but it's come to be known as the wide nine and what that does is the offensive tackle on that side has a guy coming at him from way wide with a running start and, and not a only strange that, angle too. And a strange angle and a lot of yeah. space to go in, out, spin, mm-hmm. uh, swim, move. There's a lot of, it's you know, they talk about getting running backs in space with the ball or getting a receiver in space. This is putting your best pass rusher, your best edge rusher in space, one on one against a tackle in a lot of situations. And this is made for Miles Garrett. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like he's going to be put out there. And he's going to make some plays out there. And like you said, Terry, it's interesting when I was thinking about this, like this hire tells me 
about what the Browns might be going for number one and number two on their list for the draft and free agency. And you know what number one is probably defensive line, right? Mm -hmm. But I think like a, like a hard hitting safety who can just roam the field and make plays all over is something that you need in this system. And I was kind of texting with Lance Reislin who does film for us. And he was saying that he thinks a ball hawking center field safety is a big need in this system. So those that the wide nine, and then people who can linebacker who linebacker who can come up and plug the gaps and a safety who can come up and play the run. It probably Lance was thinking it'll be Delpit's role to come up and play the run, but uh, it's going to be interesting. I think this team has the outside guys to play the wide nine, but I don't think they have the interior guys right now. Like you said, the running game is going to be it's suspect in this scheme and they need to get some personnel who can play it. So anyway, that's what I have taken from it so far. Well, that could be in a couple of things along those lines. Number one is uh, Andrew Berry was in Philly in 2019 when Schwartz was uh, his second and last defensive coordinator, second year as a coordinator. By the way, Schwartz stepped back voluntarily after the 20 season. He had, uh, I, I don't know if it was a hip replacement, but somewhat significant hip surgery and eye, and eye, eye surgery and just decided he needed to, to, to take it. Uh, some time off and get better. And then he went to Tennessee as a uh, consultant or whatever they call it. Uh, so that's, that's why he really was not let go in Philadelphia. In fact, I have a friend who's the Eagles fan and he is beloved in Philly. I mean, they just, they just loved how, what he did the defense and, you know, they had like any time they had some, some blown coverages and things too, but I think nothing like what we saw. Secondly, and another NFL person tell me he's a little like Greg Williams, but not quite as crazy. You know, <laughs> but he kind of comes in with that, you know, I'm in charge here. And David, let me ask you this: so a guy commits a team infraction, so he doesn't play the first, doesn't start and play the first series or whatever. Well, what is that? Well, we don't know what Miles did, right? Yeah, like it wasn't so, just Miles. Gel- Delpit had that too. Right. Yeah. Delpit didn't start either. So I think th- there's different degrees of infractions. And if you do something bad, you probably get suspended and sit out the game. And if you do yeah. something small, maybe you don't get to start. And maybe there's you know a fine at the end of the season. They look to see how many, yeah, and a fine maybe, but they look at yeah. how many games did you start? You know, and, and starting is a small badge of honor yeah. to be a starter on an NFL team. And um, that's all I can think about is, is, is it wasn't as major as what the other guys had done. Well, Clowney also had one of those before his big blowout. Because he didn't, I mean, the infamous I'm only playing on third down game was followed by he didn't start the next game. It's like, man, oh, man, I mean, as you said, that should have been the end of that. You're not playing on any downs. And I think Schwartz has more, will come in with more clout, that's where I'm going with this, than Woods had. So, first of all, when they're fixing the defense and what type of players they want, um, Schwartz will have... I think a bigger say than Woods. Secondly, I think also uh, if Schwartz wants to discipline somebody, he will. Kevin will basically probably go along with it. And you know, one thing about when Greg Williams was here, whether he was the defensive coordinator, and then later when he became the head coach, they did not have. I don't remember attitude problems on the defensive side of the ball. They didn't like him, but the, and certainly the eight games that he coached after Hugh was fired, uh, I remember their penalties went down by about a third and they, uh, you know, they played decent football. 
So there you go. Well, and we heard from John Johnson after the season and some of the other players talking about there was no sense of urgency on the defense and no accountability. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of those things are going to go away. I think you're right, Terry. I think this is going to be a tighter ship and it's going to be a better run ship. And now they just need to get the guys, uh, the guys to play in it. Um, I mean, I, I will say this, you know, it got to be a joke. Remember how he would play um, when Greg was here and he played the, the angel safety way back. But it did save you from some of that blown coverage, especially if you don't trust some of your guys in coverage, you know, to, to do that. I'm not sure you have to play the guy in Summit County when you're playing in Cuyahoga, but playing them farther back than they, they did is like, well, let's stop this and, you know, keep it in front of you. So I'm anxious to see, but I really think the, the part that I want to underline is he comes in with more cachet and a stronger reputation. And I think he will be listened to more uh, on terms of player personnel. And also, Andrew Berry is very invested in this. I, I think this was his guy. Now, I'm not saying Schwartz mm-hmm. is against it. But the Philadelphia connection uh, is significant. I know this. I once had a discussion with Berry quite a while ago about his one year in Philly. And he was very impressed with the operation, with Howie Roseman and how they did things. He thought – they were very now. Remember, they're very analytics heavy too. You know, when they, I think they were number two or number three because it's the top three in analytics going to ESPN were the Browns, Baltimore, and Philly. I forgot who you know the Browns are one, the others are two and three. Uh, so that appealed to him, but also uh, I do think Schwartz is a sort of an old-fashioned football guy. Well, yeah, and, and, and it seems like players really like playing for him, Terry. And you know how players love two things. They love playing and they love making money. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Tim Bielek, our colleague, has put a – he did like a roundup of what people have said about Schwartz over mm-hmm. the years. And I thought this was interesting. Um, when Javon Hargrave, the defensive tackle, signed um, in Philly, decided he was going to be an integral part of what they're doing, he said it's just more of get-up field – and it's made for defensive linemen, I think. It's a lot more exciting. It's every D lineman's dream to play wow. in a system like this. And it, you look at the list of guys that have been either pro bowlers or all mm-hmm. pros, and we've been writing about this today at cleveland.com slash browns, but uh, Fletcher Cox, uh, Marcel Darius, Nadamakan Sue, Albert Hainsworth, like those guys all signed huge contracts. And if you're a defensive lineman, a free agent, and you know you're going to be coming to play for Jim Schwartz and there's playing time here, and a lot of opportunity, and you can make some money. That people talk about the uh, what the Cleveland tax for free agents. This actually might be the Cleveland incentive mm-hmm. to come here. Jim Schwartz might help get some some really good veteran free agents to come here and play for him. The other advantage too, along those lines, is um, as you said, Schwartz could roll out the whole list of people that were here, and then we could address this defensive tackle thing. I'm very curious to see who plays defensive tackle next year and how big are they? So we could find out how much that was. But certainly when Schwartz came in and I, I they had him analyze the team, he's probably been looking at the Browns for weeks, by the way. Um, and he didn't have to take this shot. The reason the Browns moved early on this is they believe that a couple of the teams that are going to be hiring coaches would have wanted to hire Schwartz as the defensive coordinator. 
Because right now, I believe only Atlanta and the Browns are purely looking for a defensive coordinator. Maybe there's somebody else that's been fired of late. But when they started their search, those were the only two. Now, they like Flores very, very much. But Flores would like to get a head coaching uh, gig somewhere. Um, and I, I also believe that's why they knew they would have to wait on him. And they didn't want to wait on him and lose Schwartz since they like Schwartz to begin with. So good for them. They went and got somebody. And I just hope that they really do let him loose with the defense. All right. Well, now we're going to see which coaching staff changes on the defense might be happening. I'm sure he'll want to get his own people in. So we'll, we'll be seeing that play out over the next couple of weeks. And, you know, heading into the Super Bowl is a huge time for coaching changes. The Super Bowl is kind of like a convention, coaching convention. Yeah. A lot of coaches show up there. They, they swap resumes and, uh, and jobs change. So we'll now one of the things I heard, by the way, from weeks. some fans, this, and, and if, if the, I don't believe the Browns were thinking this. So I want to make that clear. This is not what I believe they were thinking. They go, well, if they bring Schwartz in and then if Kevin falls apart, they could just put Schwartz in his head coach. Well, then you might as well just fire Kevin right now and hire Jim Schwartz. Now, your idea is how can we get back to winning 10 games or 11 games like they were in 2020, back to being tough, smart, and accountable? And after you think there's a lot of get back to. Then get back to shaping Deshaun Watson up too. Because, David, I was trying to think, at the most, in those six games he played, he had maybe four really good quarters. Now, a couple of asterisks next to them because of the cold weather games. But there was the half in Washington, which followed one of the first worst first halves he's had. And there was a, like a good quarter, I thought, in the Steeler game. And I forgot there was somewhere else. But um, they need to really work on all that. I'm not writing him off or anything of that sort. But I doubt there was a single person in Berea thought that his numbers would look like that after the final six games. They were well, expecting and, and, more. And you've been talking and writing about this, Terry. So it, who's going to fix that? Kevin Stefanski and Alex Van Pelt. And if Kevin Stefanski is having to devote time during the season yeah. to this other stuff you're talking about, the, the discipline, if you have a quote-unquote head coach of the defense and quote-unquote head coaches of the offense – and you can make a lot of that stuff go away. That just makes everything easier. And you can spend time on things that need to have time spent on them. So, And, and another person told me that. they thought that um, some of Schwartz's toughness and a little bit of the Belichickian kind of approach uh, would be good for Kevin to see too. And maybe – now, you don't change your personality overnight or anything of that sort – but just as a way of, of handling things that, that he could help them. So now on his staff, because remember, they have Bill Callahan on their staff. If they actually ever needed to fire um, Stefanski at midseason, he could put Callahan in. Callahan's coached at Nebraska. Callahan's been a head coach in the NFL. He could do it. Uh, so that's, that's what I mean. It was a, that was a stupid argument uh, for Schwartz. The real argument for Schwartz is he's the head coach of the defense and brings some order in there. Basically, we'll see if he's not – if he's quite as volatile as Greg Williams, I don't think so. But I want that presence. Well, I think the Browns do too. So it's going to be yeah. an interesting couple of months here. We'll see how the staff shakes out. And then, boy, free agency and the draft are going to be just riveting to see how the Browns approaches. So, all right, Terry, you want to take a break here? Yes, we're Let's all set. Let's do it. Uh, we'll be right back in a minute. We are going to get into the Cavaliers 
And I want to ask Terry about a story that Chris Fedor wrote today about Darius Garland, whether he's seeing Darius Garland starting to play chess on the court. So we'll be right back on Terry's we'll, Talking. But when we come back to, this is one for the readers. Who on the Cavaliers has the blessed, best plus minus for the season? There we go. There's a trivia question to ponder during the break. It's going to win you <laughs> right, some well, money, too, by the way, when you hear this answer. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back on Terry's Talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, we're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, we were taking a break, and you threw out a – you ambushed everybody with a trivia question. And I I don't know if I'm going to get this one. Why don't you repeat it for people who might have forgotten All what right. it was. There's the a stat there. called plus minus. By the way, this will show you a little bit of why that stat can be rather dubious. But, in other words, when this player is on the floor – how much does his team outscore the opponents, or is his team outscored? In other words, pluses, you outscore them by, if a guy has a, for example, um, I saw the other day, Ricky Rubio in his 10 minutes had a plus minus of plus 13. So when he was on the four, they outscored him by 13. Ricky's plus minus is usually very good, but he doesn't have enough raw data to uh, to show that. All right. You get one guess, and I'm just going to tell you because we we could really this could go on forever. Before well, my guess is on. Lamar Stevens because I think he had a big plus minus yesterday, and I think I just had a gut feeling about him, but it's probably not him. No, it's not. <laughs> His is plus fourteen. Huh. Chetty Osman. I could not believe it. Really? What 182 is for the season? One eighty-two mm-hmm. plus mine would have been Jared Allen. He's number two. That would have been my guess. And where's 162. he? One sixty-two. One sixty-two. And then comes um, you got Mitchell at 138 and Garland at 138. They're both tied. Then Kevin Love 114, Levert 112. Um, like Okoro's minus eight. So now I was trying Good to figure out how they how they doing it with Chetty. I believe is this if you watch when Chetty's good. JV rides him, and the minute Chetty starts bricking the ball and throwing out a bounce, he's on the bench. They're they're not giving him. You don't get a long look at the. Uh, I think Chris Feeder's got a good Chetty, a bad Chetty. When the when the bad Chetty shows up, he gets to sit next to you know, uh, take your pick who's ever on the end of the bench these days wearing a sweatsuit. <laughs> All right, Terry. So the Cavs are twenty eight and seventeen. They're five games behind Boston in the East. Uh, I think if the playoffs started today, they'd be the five seed, maybe mm-hmm. against Philly. Uh, four and five is very tight. In fact, the whole East is really tight. But um, Monday's MLK Day win over the Pelicans was an afternoon game. It was 113 to 103. The Cavs came back and won that one. It was really a different kind of game, wasn't it, Terry? I mean, it, it seems like they wanted to win this one with everyone instead of with two great performances. Uh, what did you think of what you saw yesterday? And I have well, some for, of the stats here I wanted to run through when you're done. But go ahead. What was your impression? Uh, just, I'll give you a broad picture, and then you, you come back to the numbers. It, first of all, it's significant that they did win it um, with Mitchell. I think he had 11 points. I forgot, 20-some minutes he played. 21 he minutes. Yep. Gone in the third quarter uh, with this groin pull. Because 
Um, over the last three years, Mitchell has missed an average of 15 games per season. So you have to understand he will get hurt. In fact, he's already now, and he played in this game, so it doesn't even count in these stats, but he's already missed five. They're two and three in these, these games. So the fact that Garland was able to go back into star mode uh, was very important because there will be other games where Mitchell won't be playing, just like there will be games where Garland's not playing and they have Mitchell. That's the blessing of having them on the team together. So what numbers did you have? Well, I mean, we can run through them here. The, the big number that I wanted to get into a little bit, Terry, um, Darius Garland, 30 points in 40 minutes with 11 assists and six rebounds. It was the fourth time in his career he was at 25 or more points and a half. His fourth game with 30 or more points and his first game with 30 or more points and 10 or more assists, which I thought was noteworthy to have 30 mm-hmm. and more than 10 assists. But the reason I wanted to kind of – Garland was like the hub of yesterday, but this game yesterday really ties into some interesting content we have on Cleveland.com that I wanted to kind of bring it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Watkins, our rivalry reporter, talked to C.J. McCollum yesterday about what it was like to play with Damian Lillard in Portland and what – Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell here can learn from what those guys did in Portland where they made the playoffs eight straight years. And McCollum was talking about how it's a it's a kind of a yin and yang thing when you have two undersized guards in the backcourt. And when you have two stars like that, he said you have to be aggressive, but you also have to be like inclusive and you have to know when to go to one or the other. And then on top of that post yesterday, Chris Fedor wrote a post about the education of Darius Garland, where he quoted JB talking about um, the evolving mind of Darius Garland, how he's starting to think of the court as a chessboard. And the phrase that Chris used in that story was, you have to go between being a hunter and a distributor, depending on what the game calls for. And I thought that was interesting because it seems like that's what Darius Garland was doing yesterday was, all right, on this position, we're going to do this. We're going to get this guy the ball. And then on this one, the shot clock's running down, and I just got to take charge. Did you see that yesterday at all? What did you think of all that in terms of what JB was saying and and kind of the, inside the mind of Darius Garland? Well, first of all, I think for a lot of us, it feels like Garland's been in the league about eight years, and he's like 28 years old. He's been in the league four years, and he's 22. I believe... Mark Price was a rookie at 22, where he eventually struggled quite a bit because he played four years at Georgia Tech. So it was until Mark Price's second year, much like Garland, that he began to show something. And and then much like Garland, his third year, he became an all-star Price I'm talking about. I do see a lot of parallels in their games. Um, Price didn't shoot from quite as far out as Garland did for his threes. That's because back then they would put you on the bench. They just they didn't really – they wanted if you could take that three-pointer. They wanted it you, you, at least, you know, within where you could actually see the three-point line. You know, where these guys take them now, they're just way behind. But in terms of where you talked about the hunted and distributor, Price had to do the same thing on that team. Um, and it was because he – especially after he traded Ron Harper – that shooting guard spot, like when Mitchell's not playing, you're not going to get a lot of points out of it. Uh, so that is a it's a tricky business. Of, that's the one difference there that Price had going for him that these guys didn't 
is Brad Doherty was a 20-point scorer, and they ran a lot of high pick and rolls with Doherty, and they ran a lot of old-fashioned throw to the ball in the low post stuff with him to get him some points. You don't see that here. Um, but, you know, Garwin, to me, he's an amazing player because he is really thin, and he goes in there, and he's under control. He has knows all the angles off the backboard, um, and – He's got a nice feel for the big guys with the lobs and, and some of that. I just wish that the, the only guy in the team knows really knows how to throw the ball to the post. Well, there's two of them. One is Kevin Love and the other is Rubio. Uh, I do wish that the guards would learn how to do that because then you would see the guys set up in the low post more. And I know that's old-style basketball and three is better than two. Of course, my comment is and two points are better than none. And also, I really like throwing it under to a guy near the rim because guess what? He'll get fouled. And that those are free points there or puts the other team in a penalty. Those are things when they do their three is better than two line. It doesn't really go very deep for all these analytical eggheads. I always kind of wonder about that. Wayne Embry and I were, Wayne Embry told me some of the, because he's been a consultant uh, for Toronto for years. And he talked about, and some other teams and some of the meetings he sat there just holding his head when they just went, the three is better than two argument and this. And he's like, we, and when you throw it to the guy down low, all you could get is two. He goes, well, you, well, the other thing that happens there, you get a chance, more of a chance for an offensive rebound. And I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it's, I feel strongly about it. Because if you're double teaming that guy in a low post and somebody's leaving somebody open, and uh, if he misses, a guy comes from the weak side and gets rebounds, we, you know, we see that. So uh, Garwin is just still, he, yeah, he's, he's learning chess. He's still learning, though. There's a lot more for him to grasp on how this offense works. In the meantime, the strides he's taken. Because if you look at Tate's from his rookie year, I mean, you, you go, is this guy going to make it? I mean, is he going to be in the league from three years from now? Not is he going to be on the all-star team three years. Yeah, and just you can see the way he played yesterday. I mean, it was only one game, but, you know, Allen, 24 points, 11 mm. boards. Mobley, 19 points, 8 boards. And I think Mobley was 8 of 8 from, inside, from yeah. right, near the, right near the rim like you're talking about. Uh, if you see him continue, if Darius Garland continue to get better, they're, they're going to be able to win games where Mitchell and Garland go off. And then, like you said, if one of them's out or one of them's having an off night, mm-hmm. if, if they if he plays like this, you're going to get 22 from Allen and 22 from Mobley. And, you know, it, it's it's spreading the load out a little bit. And they can play however you want to play, kind of, depending he, on the and tempo. David, and David, he did that a lot last year. You know, if you look at some of those games last year, he did. He just got worn down physically at the end of the year. By the way, that also would happen to Price when he played. Now, with Mitchell, hopefully that doesn't happen as often. But we just got to make sure Darius doesn't get getting hit in the face. I mean, that's, that's, that's a problem. You got another one last week. I know. It's four <laughs> times, five times. Yeah. You just, you know, you see that. I, I love this team. I just do. And then you had, Chris had a, Chris Fedor had a nice comment about how the other day uh, uh, in the locker room, when, when he knew the media was in there, Mitchell was yelling, you know, Darius Garland, 2023 All-Star, book it. See, Mitchell gets this stuff too, that this is, that he's come in. And Mitchell, I will say, I have seen everybody who's ever played for the Cavs of consequence. I mean, I'm sure there have been some guys passing through that I just missed their five games in Cleveland or something. But anybody, any Cavalier player, because you know the, the the season, their first season was 1970. At that point, I was 15 years old, loved basketball, so I've seen them all. 
The only guy better than Mitchell, and now it's a short uh, sample size so far, but the only guy better than Mitchell I've seen is LeBron. And I love Price. You know, Kyrie's a great scorer, but Mitchell – I mean, Mitchell goes, gets a, a shot any times he wants near the rim. Now, one thing that we have to be fair to him, and I'm, I'm working on some scribbles about this, is he takes – it doesn't look like it because he's so strong, but he takes a lot of shots, and I think that's where these injuries come from. Uh, and, By shots, you mean uh, getting knocked down? Yeah, a lot hacks. of hits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of hits and some cheap shots too and going to the rim. And so he takes a fair amount of shots from the field too. Uh, but what I like, and you know, they they try to when he's missing a three pointer, they go just go to the rim, because remember he shoots like in the high eighties from the free throw line. See, that's another thing that makes him great, and and he can be a good defender when his mind is set to it. I know they're always pushing him to that, but also just the little things like I just don't think Kyrie Irving would ever be yelling across the locker room about a team at you know. Uh, whoever it may have been, Kevin Love, you know, 2019 All-Star game, book it. I just don't think you're <laughs> going to get that out of Kyrie or whenever he was here. But, see, Mitchell understood, and then how Mitchell was so active when he was hurt on the bench talking to um, Kyrie. I'm talking to Kyrie. Boy, my brain is going. Talking to uh, not only uh, Darius, but some of the other players. And he must be saying things that make sense because uh, it looks like JB lets him have a lot of free reign that way. Yeah, a lot of similarities between Donovan Mitchell and LeBron. There's in so many ways, Terry, and I think we're going to continue to see that play out. So, uh, anything else on the Cavs? Yeah, I just also, as you mentioned too, about Mobley having a really good game. Uh, Jared Allen to me continues to be maybe one of the most underrated players in all of the NBA because of what he means to this team, and just he never complains about not getting the ball or whatever. He and he can get out. And Mobley can do this too. And they, when they put him in a pick and roll, well, he'll just go out and guard a six foot one guard and he'll defend him. And they finally, the guy just gives it up and passes it or jacks up a long shot. They find they can't get around him. Um, now, one other thing, a, a negative thing, his uh, last 10 games, Kevin Love is just having a miserable, miserable time shooting the ball. It's a uh, 32% from the field and 24% on three pointers. Now I thought that all went back to his, um, remember he hurt his thumb, but he actually, he had a bad spell there. Then he had about a good three weeks and now he's in the dumper again. Uh, by the way, here's, here's one for you. It's kind of an arcane stat, but I, I do like it because it matches the eye test. When they talk about a guy, like the percentage of type of rebounds he gets, basically the stats show that when he's on the floor, Kevin Love is the best defensive rebounder in the NBA. defensive rebounder. And if you think about it, he's in there, flat-footed, blocking out, gets a rebound, throws a long out pet. It could be 1953. I love it. All right, Terry. Well, the the schedule makers have not done the Cavs any favors here. Coming off that long road trip, they get the stop yesterday for one game against New Orleans, and then they're back on the road for a game at Memphis on Wednesday night. That's an 8 o'clock tip-off. That should be very interesting. And then they have to come home and play – the Warriors and the Bucks back to back on Friday and Saturday at home. They're both at home, but still, that's a pretty tough double back to back like that coming off. And that's uh, why when you mentioned of road games, so yeah. And David, to your point, when you mentioned Garland, you know, is evolving now and how to do this when Mitchell's in, Mitchell's out, and how we've seen how Mitchell 
does it when Garland's not there? Because you're going to have to do that because of the schedule's going to dictate there are games when guys are just going to be out. I remember how the Cavs desperately kept looking for a backup point guard to Mark Price because they um, uh, he was a rookie, and he was actually backing up John Bagley as a rookie. He start, he didn't start Bagley, did. Then his second year, um, they, uh, they drafted uh, Kevin Johnson, who they thought would take his place, take Bagley's place and start. Price beat out Kevin Johnson and beat him out to the point that in the middle of that season, they traded Kevin Johnson for Larry Nance, and then suddenly they had no backup point guard. And they tried Darnell Valentine and all kinds of people. In fact, they ended up drafting Terrell Brandon, who went on to make a couple of all-star teams towards the end of Mark's career because they were always looking for that other guard. The fact that Mitchell and Darius can play this combo guard thing um, and you don't need a – backup point guard, although I love they have Rubio, is a tremendous advantage for them. Absolutely. So some big games against some good opponents coming up. Oh, this yeah. Week, and how about, how about what Memphis has done? That's phenomenal to me. You know, Jean Morant and that, but, you know, Stephen Ant, it's not a star-studded team. It's a really good team. Morant's tremendous. But still, it's just not where you just go name – I, mean, I bet most the average basketball fans have a hard time naming the five starters for, for, the Memphis, for the Memphis Grizzlies. So why are they called the Grizzlies? Why wouldn't the NBA – we could <laughs> fix this. You, what you do is you trade nicknames. You take the Utah Jazz. The Jazz nickname gets traded to Memphis because that makes sense. You'd rather have Blues, but Jazz is close enough. And certainly Grizzlies, you're a lot more likely to find one of those in Utah than you are on Beale Street. <laughs> Let's start a campaign, Terry. We can get that changed. Well, we could we, we fix some of these nicknames. Yesterday. Yeah, just fix these nicknames. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, hey, let's move on to the Guardians, Terry. You wrote over the weekend about the renovations happening to Progressive Field, and it seems like you've been hearing from some fans who aren't big fans of it, and you were writing mm-hmm. about why you should be in favor of it, of the renovations. They're going to be redoing the Terrace Club. There's going to be a bunch of changes where the boxcars are. Uh why should Guardians fans like what's happening? Well, first of all, the, the, the notion that they're turning the whole thing into one big sports bar and nobody's going to be able to sit and seat and watch a game is just not true. They're not really doing much with the bleachers. I mean, they might change the, the, the bleachers around, put some new chairs out or benches out there, but that's it. Secondly, the lower bowl is not going to be changed dramatically. That's where your, most of your season tickets are. Thirdly, who was ever in the upper deck to begin with? I mean, who's up there? Yeah, 80% of the time, it's like nobody. I'm not just talking about, as you said, the shipping crates or whatever they are in right field. I mean, most of the upper deck, there just were not a lot of people up there. So the fact that they're going to try to do something else with it, this makes sense. And by the way, I like how – some of the people in my generation are complaining. Oh, those young people, they're just on their phones all the time. I can tell you one thing. Some of my people from my generation are on their phones all the time, too. So <laughs> just stop with that. Everybody's on their phone a lot. And yeah, I was, just gonna say, like, I was just going to say, like, you can't have it both ways if you're a Guardians fan. Like, you can't say that the team won't spend any money and then say that you don't like what's going on with the ballpark renovations because the Guardians have research that shows 
Like this is what should be done. And this is what people want to go to the games. And so if you don't do this and, and provide these like social areas for the fans to come and enjoy the game the way they want, you lose the revenue from the concessions and the tickets and, and the growing the fan base. And then you don't have money to buy the players. So it all has to work hand in hand. Yes. There's going to be fans who are going to sit and watch a game. And you were writing about this, Terry, about how you used to show yeah. up with your dad and walk down West third and get a, a scorecard and walk in and you sit in your seat for three hours and watch the game start to finish and keep score. Yes. There's fans like that, but there's also fans who go there to try and meet people and, and get a date. And, and, you know, there's, you have to have room for both of those so that both of those communities can enjoy the guardians experience. And that's, I think they had to do something like this. If they were drawing 30,000 a game and selling out, you know, 15 or 20% of their games and all that, that would be different, but they're not, they're not going to. I mean, I got a fan that just said, you know, you have some gall saying Cleveland is a small market team. Well, the exact line I wrote was, it is the smallest market with the three teams, Major League Baseball, uh, NBA, and and, and uh, the NFL. And all that is is a fact. That's it. It's a fact. So there has been a lot of talk there that thankfully the Dolans do own the team because they are very committed to keeping it here, and this is one way to do it. And so if they want to try this thing with the upper deck, and by the way, they have to do a lot of work down below. Not only they should have actually accented this more in their discussions when they had their press conference last week. Yeah, they need to, you know, they're upgrading the clubhouse and that. But if you just walk through the bowels of the stadium and look at the uh, some of the foundation and things, it needs work. It does. And they're going to be redoing that whole under area where yeah. the clubhouses and everything are to, to make it uh, state-of-the-art, more facilities for the players. And you see some of the concretes cracking and all. I mean, it's, it's, they're going to be 30 years old. So um, it, it just makes sense. And, you, you know, you want to watch the game, sit in the bleachers. You want to watch the game, you sit in the lower bowl anyway most of the time. And it's not like the whole upper deck is not going to have any seats. There'll be seats up there. I just find this this ridiculous. I really do. Yeah, and it's going to help secure the team staying here for as long yeah, as possible. Yeah, it's part of the lease deal and everything lease, yeah. else. I mean, I was just looking at prices of uh, stadiums and things. Did Did you see what the bills are? The bills' new stadiums going to cost? What is it? It's over a billion, right? One point four. One point four. The Titans' new stadium. One point five. I believe the Titans is a dome. And that's going to have a big shopping district and everything. So this is just this is just what's happening right now. And, and the public funding on those things are very large. And that's that's how it goes. Um, and I, I've gotten some emails of people complaining. Well, the, first of all, the capacity has been about thirty five thousand for quite a while. It's not like they cut it from forty five to thirty five. Secondly, they average. 18 or whatever it is, 14, I don't know. So, well, I mean, the public money is a debate for another day, Terry, and how much is devoted but to no, it. But no, but I meant they're shrinking the capacity or whatever down to 35. No, no, but what I was going to say is, oh, like, if you, if you don't make the ballpark viable for the ownership and for the team, you're going to end up like Buffalo, which mm-hmm. is a city that's comparable to Cleveland and has one team. So, and, and that, also, that's yeah, kind and of choice. Right, so and Buffalo dug deep because they because they know that up the road is where the NFL wouldn't mind moving that team to Toronto. They know it. It sits up there. Toronto's got everything but the NFL. All right, 
Well, let's move on, Terry. We got some good Hey Terry questions this week. We're going to get good. into it. It's probably enough ballpark talk. So, all right. Yeah. Well, uh, I just fans like the ballpark. I'm basing it on. I'm going to use a lot of my emails. They, they, they are. It's, it's a thing that you know fans relate to. So that's why yeah. I'm glad we wanted to depth on it. Love passion for sure. I mean, look, you either got that or you got Teddy Osmond with his plus 180. What do you want? <laughs> There's a lot of passion about that stat too, Terry. After you that <laughs> yeah, one at least from his agent, anyway. All right, this first question is from Chuck Lachlan. I hope I got your last name right, Chuck from Menor, and he says, "Hey, Terry, I was looking at the scores of the Browns games during Kevin Stefanski's tenure. One thing that is apparent is that the Browns have gotten progressively worse in close games. Below mm. is a summary of their margin of their, the records of margin by win or loss. He's got a chart down below." When the Browns were four and zero, decided by I'm botching this whole thing. Sorry. When the Browns were four and zero in games decided by three or fewer points, they were eleven and five overall. This year, they were one and four in such games and ended up seven and ten. This brings to mind the times that Stefanski turned down the field goal in order to go for it on fourth down. Mm-hmm. When the fourth down play failed, they ended up with zero points. This can result in losing close games. Finally, the record indicates that the Browns have gotten progressively worse in winning the close. Oh, he already said that. My thought is that good coaches find ways to win close games more often than not. I am beginning to question as to whether Stefanski falls into the realm of good coaches. What are your thoughts? And I'm sorry for botching your letter, Chuck, but I think well, we get the Well, basically the stats in the first year, they were 4-0, and those, was it three points or less? Three points or less, and this year they were 1-4. Yeah. Right, and if you were to, there were also there's there was a they had a big stat even like six points or less that year. In fact, now the analytics types I don't buy this, but they they claim winning close games often is a function of luck. How about that? You, you put all the geeks together, you go into all your analytics and all your AI and everything else, and you come up with luck. No, I'm not buying it um, because I do think to Chuck's point, three points is better than none. By the way, if we're doing football, and that's what you end up with. Uh, by the way, here's an NFL stat uh, that I have I'm from the Browns last year. This maybe doesn't tie in totally, but the Browns gave up 22 rushing touchdowns last year. That was 30th in the league. In other words, they did they didn't stop them on the ground anywhere, including near the goal line, which a hey, leads to points. So we'll see how this goes, but they should sit down and talk about that and really look at it. Uh, And that's why my thing, kickers are important. And they had a rookie this year. So, well, I think that 22 touchdowns rushing is going to be coming down, Terry. And I do think that Cade York will be having a better second year than he did her first Mm -hmm. year. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still, I guess free for safe, but I still want some, sometimes wonder about that. Well, I think May- the defensive coordinator was the first hire, so it appears yeah. that Mike Prefer is going to stick around, but hey, it's still I early. I mean, you don't know. I mean, suppose one of these teams that it's firing a head coach or whatever or, or going to one of these top special teams coach comes on the market. I mean, if you're Kevin Stefanski, you've got to sit there and say, i got to get the best possible coaching staff for this year because, you know, as as Chuck pointed, the, 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 the amount of uh, losing close games and, and – at that press conference, I don't know how many times both uh, Barry and Stefanski said the margin is thin in the NFL. Well, you're right. And a lot of times that margin is made up with special teams, mm-hmm. as you point out. So, All right, Terry, this one is from Alan Gilbert from Columbus. And Alan says, hey, Terry, love your writing and your podcast, no matter how good or bad the Browns get. 
I always <laughs> loved reading and hearing your perspective. Today, Paul Hoynes said when he signed the extension, Jose Ramirez said he wanted to do three things before saying goodbye to the game. He wanted to help the Guardians win a World Series, have his number 11 retired, and be elected to the Hall of Fame. He's certainly on his way to two of those goals. That's what Hoynes said, is that he's Mm -hmm. certainly on his way to two of those goals. And Alan says, I read this three times, and I'm still asking myself, what of these goals is he not on his way to? So which of the three goals do you think, Terry, did Hoynes mean? Uh, winning a World Series, having his number retired, and being elected to the Hall of Fame. I would take it to be that the World Series because he yeah. can't control that, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be it. And I would add, too, I do think that they would build a statue to him. If he finished his career here, which he got six more years, uh, I think that's that's very – I could see this ownership in that doing that for uh, for Jose. But I, I believe it's the, I mean, the World Series, who knows, since they've oh, – that was Jose saying, we'll win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> Calling on that. Calling on the hotline. Saying, that's right. Saying, what do you mean I'll make the World Series? We're going to win the World Series. So that would probably be it. I mean, what a what a career this guy had. Signed for $50,000. You know, always one the, the one that was just never high on the prospect list. You know, the only manager in the big leagues he's ever played for is Terry Francona. Something. He's one of the. He's going to be one of the great stories in franchise history by the time he's done and from beginning to end. So, hey, if you want to hit us with a Hey Terry question, there was some bad hosting happening today, Terry. We ran long, and so we had a couple more, but we're not mm-hmm. going to get to them until next week. So I will hold those. But if you want to hit us with any questions or comments for next week's podcast, you can send us an email at sports at cleveland.com. And just put, hey, Terry, or Terry's talking in the subject line. We will try and get to it next week if the host does a better job and keeps the show moving. <laughs> all right, well, Terry. Well, I think um, I tell sometimes too many old stories. No, not at all. That's why we're here. So, uh, All right, so a couple of promos here. Um, go to cleveland.com slash Browns. Check out all of our Jim Schwartz stuff today. We've got some great stuff already from Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Lobby. Uh, Tim Bielek has that roundup of what people have said about Jim Schwartz. Lance Reisland, who I mentioned earlier, who does a lot of film breakdowns for us, is going to have an in-depth look at what Jim Schwartz likes to run and how it works and, and how the Browns personnel fits it. Let's see. What else? Do you want to plug your January 26th one more time at the Music Box? Yeah, Music Box, January 26th. Doors open at 5. I'll be on between 6.30 and 7. Uh, it's free to get in. They'll try to sell you food. And it's a lot of fun. Um, I did it uh, early last winter and uh, a solo act, and we had a great time. And then also I was part of the Browns one there, too. It's a, it's a neat spot right on the flats. And I love to watch the boats go by. Me, too. It's a good place to sit and people watch. So, all right, Terry, enjoy the weekend. And uh, thank you all for listening. And hope you enjoy the Cavs games this weekend. A couple of really good ones against the Warriors and the Bucks. And we'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.